Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner podcast. I'm Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts, and I'm finally back in the saddle after needing to take a break from recording for a while while dealing with some health stuff because lupus is dumb, folks. Um, my co-host Jimmy has been amazing at holding down the fort, keeping things rolling along. Thanks, Jimmy. Really appreciate it. But I'm excited to be back with everyone on a glorious sunny day here in uh, North Carolina, Piedmont, where it's unseasonably 80 degrees today in November, but we still have that gorgeous fall color hanging on. I'm sitting down today with my friend, Professor Ryan Claytor, who is crowdfunding a beautiful 250-plus page hardcover book, looking back and reflecting on 20-plus years of work as a cartoonist, illustrator, creative, slash lots of other things, which we'll get into in a minute. <laughs> As of our recording, Ryan has already surpassed the funding goal for One Bite at a Time. Um, congrats on that. Um, but before we get ahead of ourselves, Ryan, it's, it's finally good to get a chance to chat with you again. I know last time was way back, like pre-podcast launch, uh, when I was running interviews on like Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it today, Spaces. Like, how have you been? Yeah, I've been really good, Byron. Thank you so much for having me back on. It's really great to be back here and, uh, and chatting with you. And hey, congrats on on the new place in North Carolina. That's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're happy to be out of Florida. Um, <laughs> well, you lead in the promotional video on the Kickstarter page about this being about a love of process, kind of very from a very early age even. So in some ways with 20 plus years, you know, kind of in under in your career so far, um, we're, we're not done yet. Right. <laughs> um, it feels kind of like a, a retrospective endeavor uh, kind of to release this, but you know, why, why this and why now? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, first of all, we're talking about this big, crazy, oversized hardcover art book that's called One Bite at a Time. And if folks are interested in this, they can find it at onebiteatatimebook.com. That'll take you straight to the Kickstarter page that's live for the duration of November 2023. So uh, the why about 20 years, uh, well, I have done a bunch of different odd things in my life, like comics and illustration and design, like designing watches and designing neon signs and making fancy pancakes and lots of other stuff too. And a lot of it had never seen print before. And I really wanted a place that I could share all this with people at the same time, if we rewind about five years ago, I was promoting the book Coin-Op Carnival that I co-wrote with my buddy and illustrated it on my own. And the two of us were touring that around the country. And that was a very busy year for us. At the end of that year, I also realized, oh my gosh, this is my 15th anniversary of creating comics. And I did not make any sort of noise about it because it was just completely out of my radar, uh, focusing so much on promoting Coin-Op Carnival. So that year, I vowed to myself, okay, when it's 20-year time, I'm going to do something about it, and started conceptualizing what that might look like. And I thought, man, what, what a great, fun project it would be to celebrate 20 years with a big art book. And so that's the point at which I really started researching and compiling and trying out different page layouts and uh, having conversations with important people in my life about this, like, like my wife. Uh, I okay. remember coming to her at, you know, at the end of 2019, we were out having dinner one night and I, I was sort of like pitching this idea to her. And I said, Oh, I think I want to make an art book for my 20th anniversary and uh, feature a bunch of my work. Kind of like I mentioned to you and, you know, what do you think? <laughs> and she was like, um, I don't know. Like why, why are you doing that? And I said, well, you know, 20 years, want to celebrate. Like, that'd be fun, right? She's like, uh, I don't know. Like, like, what's the point? Is it just uh, sort of a glorified, um, you know, self-promotional project? And I didn't want it to be. I really wanted it to be something more useful and more special than that. And so yeah. we really started talking. And I'm so glad that she really pushed me on this purpose behind the project. Because really, it uh, formed the direction for this book, which is really an overarching theme of process. So 
I'm also a university educator. I teach comics at Michigan State University uh, and spearheaded the comic art and graphic novel minor course of study that we have here. And so like teaching is in my blood. And I sort of view this book as like a bit of an extension of Ryan Clater, the educator, because every work in this book is showcased on a right-hand page, but then also on the left-hand page, it's paired with a little bit of contextual information, you know, a paragraph or two, but mostly a bunch of full-color images showcasing how that piece came to be. So it takes you from thumbnail sketches, which look like garbage, <laughs> and then, you know, initial pencils and inks and colors and the different steps along the way. And that there's a surprising variety in that too that I found, especially moving from the different media that I mentioned before. So like comics is one thing, but then how do you make a watch or a neon design? So in my client work, like neon design work, I'll show the three different uh, sketches that I'll provide to the client, you know, taking into consideration their interests. I'll say, hey, here's a few things that we can do. And then they will choose one of those and we'll move forward with uh, different color options. And then they'll choose one of those and we'll move forward with the final fabricated piece. So uh, I, I really am interested in sharing this process with people because it's really like a part of who I am as an educator. I just, I, I love talking about how things are made. And I also love understanding how things are made, whether it's comics or pinball machines or chocolate bars or what have you, you know, that, that really uh, interests me. And so I guess I'm kind of trying to put out into the world what I want to see in the world. Okay. So did your wife stay on as like a, an editor on this? I mean, I know I would probably not go down that road. Like, uh, <laughs> Noel well, is my second worst critic after myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's been more of a, uh, like I'll, I'll show her things as they come about and she's yeah. not acting as an official editor or anything, but she yeah. certainly has opinions, uh, as part of why I love her. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, so she's definitely had input along the way, but I, I, I don't know that I'd saddle her with that duty of, of being a, a full-fledged editor on the book. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, you had a lot to comb through, um, which personally feels very daunting. Like the, the idea of trying to go through 20 years and review all my own work into some sort of collected edition, you know, I, I prefer much more to maintain being more project focused, but how did you kind of go about deciding what specifically to include? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I typically am very similar to you. I'm very head down in the trenches, focused on a project. And it's not often that I'll like step back and take a minute to recognize like, hey, you've done a couple things. That's, that's all right. <laughs> and I think that's important, not just for me, but for, for everybody, for all creatives, because I think we do get like, you know, in that headspace of got to create the work, got to keep making content, got to keep doing it. Um, so this was a nice chance to sort of step back and look back at what I've done. Um, and as far as what pieces got included and what did not, I really tried to give a, broad overview of my work and it's it's set up chronologically starting from the very beginning and there's okay. some work in the beginning there that's you know kind of rough <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I, I certainly did not start out fully formed and i think this book also serves as like an overarching narrative of this career in progress and i i say in progress because as you alluded to I'm not done after 20 years. I, right, I want another right. 20 or more ahead of me. Uh, you know, if 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 the world treats me all right, I want to I want to keep doing this for as long as I can. Um, so, as far as what got included, there were a number of things that I did not include because I could not find process work for it. And as I mentioned, this book is heavily based on process. It has a big theme of process that runs throughout. So um, there were a number of things that ended up on the cutting room floor that uh, I couldn't find thumbnails or original pencils or inks. Like all I had were digital files. And I didn't just want this book to be a series of, of pretty pictures. You know, I've read art books like that and it leaves me feeling 
kind of empty. Like I just want to, I want to know more about that piece. Yeah. And so that was part of the picking and choosing process for what went into the book. Of course, I'm going to put stuff in there that I'm proud of and I'm passionate about, but you know, sort of a secondary layer of editing was what has process associated with it. And especially for those older pieces, it was really like digging in some drawers and some archives and trying to figure out what was available. So it's been a quite a treasure hunt trying to figure out the the pagination, the pacing of this book. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Well, kind of often talk about what influences creators, right? It, you know, it's it's almost a given in, in these type of interviews, um, but usually this ends up being more of a discussion about your artistic or your, you know, written work influences, maybe film or TV for people. But, you know, what I love here is kind of the inclusion of other things, because this is how I've always personally been actually inspired in my own work, right? So it's what pushes me. Sure, right? I love Ansel Adams. His footprint on my work is pretty clear, but you know, as an educator, I'm sure you go through this all the time. Mimicry isn't ultimately where you find your own voice, right? It's an important element. It helps you start, you know, um, but it's the other things that, that pique your interest that push you to find your own thing or perhaps your own new thing, um, which you've done multiple times. So now you have watches, pinball machines, fancy pancakes, you know, those things. How, how did those inspire you and kind of push you as a, as a visual creative? Yeah, I I know when at least I I imagine when somebody comes to a work like this for the first time, they probably think, "Man, this is just all over the place. How is this all under one roof?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to me, oddly, it all makes sense because in my mind, it all comes back to comics. Comics in my mind are this custom puzzle piecing experience. Like, uh I am not very interested in predetermined puzzles. Like if we buy a puzzle, you know, um, I have sort of a hard time getting myself interested in it because I think, well, it's been done before. Why are we doing this again? Or like if you go to one of those wine and paint nights and everybody's painting the same thing. I've I've done one of those, but I was very bad because I just painted something different. I just, I, I couldn't do it. And so to me, creating comics, you're thinking about things on a macro level in terms of story and plot. And then on like a smaller level, when you get to page design and you're trying to fit the panel structure to the grid structure of the page, and then within each panel, how are you fitting characters and environments and words? Because those take up space too. Um, there's just all this really interesting custom puzzle solving when creating comics. And in my mind, that transfers really nicely to other media with restrictions as well. Because in comics, you know, you don't have audio. You can't work with that. In comics, you have like a two-dimensional page with ink on it or pixels on a, a screen. Whereas when you're working with something like neon, you've got restrictions too. Like, uh, you know, you cannot cross lit tubes that are animated because when the back one lights up, it's going to light up the front one. Or you've got a certain number of transformers that you can work with. And every step of animation in a neon sign includes another transformer that adds more um, cost to the job. So, you know, lots of things to take into account. Also, watch design. You've got these dynamically moving portions in a watch, these multiple discs. and But essentially, you're creating artwork on a flat surface. And you can think about how each of those are masking one another and how that comes into play once they're all put together. So in my mind, <laughs> they're all related and integral, integrally related to the medium of comics, this custom puzzle-solving experience. So I think that is what informs all of my work. Yeah, it's very interesting. I never had thought too much before seeing kind of some of your watch design stuff, how a comics panel and a watch plane could be the same basic thing, you know, in terms of exploring it. Yeah. They're they're surprisingly similar. I mean, in comics, often you're using flat colors with watch printing. Uh, they're using what's called pad printing. This is a means of printing solid colors on very small and sometimes not flat surfaces. So 
probably the the biggest use of pad printing that people would know about is Lego minifigures. So it's how they stamp the face on there or the clothing design or what have you. That's used, uh, that's created using pad printing. And it's the same process that they use to create these watch discs at Mr. Jones Watches, where I've collaborated and designed a a number of watches at this point. So, um, so yeah, you're working with these flat colors and this limited space. Uh, Comic artists will typically draw large and then shrink their work down to size. It's exactly what's happening on these watches to a larger degree. Uh, you know, I'm I'm shrinking my work probably about uh, 25% of its original scale for the watches versus like 66% for my comics. But there's this resizing aspect involved too. So yeah, there's there's a lot of skills that transfer between there. Yeah. So okay, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but now I'm curious. <laughs> so in terms of color compression, um, is that something that is hard to deal with? I mean, I know dealing with prints, you're all, like from from the photography angle, right? So this is my filter. You know, you're always thinking of things in terms of how big your print size is. And th- this is how wide your your color gamut needs to be because like the smaller the print, you know, the more compact those colors kind of seem to be visually. So imagine with a watch that's pretty pronounced. Yes. So when you're I- I'm I'm trying to relate it to photography as you mentioned because in photography you've got almost limitless number of colors that you can work with and you're Mm -hmm. talking about when you size that down those kind of compressed together i think it's a little bit different in terms of watch design because instead of having many 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 different colors to work from you've got a limited color palette it's closer to like screen printing than it is to photography i would say where screen printing you have a solid color and then on top of that, you print another solid color. And on top of that, you print another solid color. Got there's okay. not a ton of mixing therein. Um, so essentially, when you're putting down these colors, you have X number of colors. And um, you know, in the watch that's in the watch I designed that's in the permanent collection at Mr. Jones Watches, which means it's available for sale still. Uh, that watch is the most complex design that they make uh it's got not only how many colors were on the face of that dial i want to say like 9 10 11 you know imagine screen printing a shirt with like 11 different colors like everyone has to be hit individually that's nuts and then on top of that there's even triple gilding on the watch so there's yellow gold white gold and uh rose gold on there so it looks like there's this gold silver and uh, copper colored robot playing this pinball machine, which is reading out the time to you. So all that to say, it's a, a very complex process, but the color is limited in terms of the number of plates or prints that you lay down, not necessarily in terms of the resizing. So conceivably, we could make a watch with 20 different colors or 50 okay. different colors, but yeah, I think the return on labor, time investment, and cost that we could, uh, you know, potentially charge for these, you know, we we want to keep these as accessible as possible. Sure. I, I don't I don't think the return would be there. To make a long story short, gotcha. Well, looking back on kind of two decades of your work, this is bound to elicit some feelings. Um, <laughs> but what I want to know is, you know, what do you hope the reader takes specifically more away from the experience? Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope they take away a few things. I hope that one of those things they take away is, um, hey, look, here's a guy who is has been doing this for 20 years. He's obviously got a, uh, a commitment to this, if nothing else. <laughs> but I also think that some of those earlier works that I've included in there are not as polished, Right. Not as good as some of the more recent works I've included. And so you can kind of see this progression of an artist over the course of a couple decades. And I hope they take away, oh, okay, you don't have to be fully formed in order to be an artist, in order to do something like this. Like there is an evolution process over the course of this. And um, I also hope that folks take away that you don't need permission to do what you want to do. I think there's so there's such a prevalent mindset in 
the creative world, whether it be comics or prose or painting or sculpture or what have you, like you, you've got to be vetted in order to be validated. And that is not the case. I started self-publishing, honestly, because I didn't think my work was good enough to get picked up by a traditional publisher. Okay. And looking back, I, I think I was probably right. Like my work wasn't ready. Um, but, you know, fast forward 20 years. And if I wanted to, I, I, I think I might be able to get picked up by a tr more traditional publisher. But um, I have no interest in being published in a traditional manner. I am a vehement self-publisher after all these years because uh, I get to maintain control of my own work. I get to maintain ownership of it. I get to have total and complete say over what happens. So that if I want to put out a weird little project, like my late grandfather's poem that he wrote over 40 years ago, and I want to turn that into comic book form, and I want to make it this unpublishably tiny size and print it on uncoated paper stock so that it has a particular feel and aesthetic to it, and, uh, and I want to see if that flies, I can make it and put it out into the world and see if people are interested. By the way, they were, because when I talked to you last time, we were talking about that very book. And that little poetry comic book about empathy that my grandfather wrote many years ago, five-figure funded. Yeah. Imagine me, some creator, receiving five figures from any publisher for some tiny little book of a poem that my grandfather wrote. It's not going to happen in any reality we're in right now. But that's all public information. It's on the Kickstarter page for A Hunter's Tale. And uh, I'd encourage people to go look at that. And hopefully, to get back to your question, <laughs> people will take away, you don't need to be vetted to be a valid artist. You can do this on your own. So there's a lot of things you got away with here that a publisher will never let you do. I mean, Amen. This, is, this is what you're, you're saying right here that you don't want to deal with all that. Um, Cause when I saw the launch of this thing, I was a bit surprised. Um, you know, the attention to detail, even for you is over the top, right? <laughs> so you've got the foil stamping, gilded edges, a ribbon bookmark, a cloth bound cover. It's fancy, right? All that wasn't a surprise, but then we're going with like these custom formatting elements on the interior pages, gatefolds, vellum, die cut reveals. Did you need all that to, to talk about process? I guess that's <laughs> what I'm curious about, right? Okay. Do you, does a book need this? No, it doesn't need it. But I am a big appreciator of not only the form of the book, but when a creative person will take the time to think about how the form can relate to and hopefully emphasize the content of the book. So you mentioned a lot of these things, and I'm, I'm really excited about this book for a couple of reasons. One is the content that we already kind of touched on. But since you brought up the second thing I'm really excited about, it's the format of the book. There's a lot of specialty formatting elements in here, and you mentioned quite a few. So Nice job taking notes on all this because Absolutely. that's a lot. That's my job. <laughs> um, so uh, let's let's just take one for example. In fact, uh, do you mind if I share my screen here real quick? And I'll try yeah. to um, illustrate this for folks and narrate it for the listening audience. But yeah. essentially, I'm looking at the Kickstarter page for my book. And uh, this image in front of us is a page of original artwork. So for the comics folks among us, we've probably all seen those big, beautiful IDW uh, artist editions of work where there's a really nice high resolution scan of original artwork. So it's like the closest thing you can get to owning original art from someone without actually owning it. And this is what I've done here. There's a very high resolution scan where you can see the pencils that went down first and the inks on top and the multiple strokes and even the texture of the page on here. But I bring up all this to say, when this original artwork is printed in the book, it's going to be paired with a page behind it of final, clean, colored, uh, final artwork. And when that 
original artwork overlays over top of it, there are a few die-cut holes in that yep. page that will reveal that final colored work behind it and line up with the original artwork so that viewers can either look at the before, the original art, or the after, the colored piece, or the before and after at the same time. So this is just one of the many ways that all this specialty formatting goes to enhance this overarching theme of process throughout the book. Okay. Yeah, it's like a picture window almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's, you know, you mentioned uh, gatefold pages and vellum overlay, like the vellum overlay. Let's just talk about that real quick. So uh, essentially, when I am illustrating, uh, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around like interlocking pieces in a drawing. Like that just breaks my brain a little bit and it's a big challenge for me. But I also love pinball. And I like drawing pinball machines, and that's all about interlocking items. So uh, I'm thinking of a particular in- illustration I did of a pinball playfield, and it had some ramps going over top of it. And when I was drawing that, I was starting to conceptualize like, oh gosh, how am I going to draw these ramps over top and make it all fit together? And eventually I thought, well, why am I making this difficult on myself? I can just draw it on a piece of tracing paper, overlay it over top. And that'll even make it easier for me when it comes time to coloring, because then I can isolate those ramps without having to pick apart every little uh, piece of line art underneath it. So that's what I did in reality. In the book, when this piece of original artwork is printed in there, it's going to have that original piece of Bristol. And then one of the pages in the book is going to be a sheet of vellum with some printing on it of everything that I had on that piece of tracing paper in reality. So when that overlays over top of that original artwork, it'll fit together nicely, just like it did when I was creating it. So again, getting this as close as possible to the original creation as I can, and just another way of enhancing this theme of process. That had to take a while to come up with all these ideas and how to put this (laughs) together, how you wanted to present it. Uh, I don't envy this at all. I I give a lot of credit to the printer who I'm working with for being just so incredibly patient with me because over the course of designing this, you know, I, I proposed something initially and every month or two, I'd write them and say, hey, I have an idea. Can yeah, we like, do great. this? Ryan's, Ryan's <laughs> back at us, right? And they're still talking to me. There <laughs> so you go. Again, okay. I, I give them a lot of credit. Uh, and every time I asked them something, I said, can we do this? They would never tell me no. They would say, yes, we can do this. And here's how much it'll cost. And right. allowed me to make the decision of whether or not that was worth it for the final product. So uh, I just have nothing but good things to say about the printer that I'm working with. I, there are not many companies in this world that would have taken this journey with me, but I'm so incredibly excited to share this book with people. I mean, I, I just got the, uh, the sample book like oh, cool. a day before the, the Kickstarter launch, and it turned out gorgeous. I don't know if you can see this, but this is like the dual cloth binding here. There's uh, foil stamping on the cover. I don't know if we can hit that in the light, but yeah. it's also on the spine and the back cover too. Uh, if I can move this belly band out of the way, but uh, you can see the logo on the back there as well. So uh, anyway, I'm over the moon about what they put together and I cannot wait to share this book with people. Okay, it seems like a good spot to take a quick break. Hey, y'all. Jimmy recently scored me a signed, personalized copy of Hallow's Eve from Erica Schultz after our interview. You've probably had this problem too. I got this great book. Now, how'd I display this thing? Well, I discovered this great product from Crafty Comics that lets you showcase your treasured comics and they even have options for already slab books too. I got their flex frame, which is amazing as you can customize the backing and it even has interchangeable watercolors to coordinate with your space. I opted for neutral gray to match the blue in my room. You can hang portrait or landscape, and it comes with a template to make it easy to ensure that you get it exactly where you want it. To my surprise, my wife, who tolerates my comic stuff, was actually impressed with the overall quality and look. When 
So if you're looking for the perfect solution to showcase your own collection, visit craftycomics.com online. That's crafty with an I. Use the discount code YETI5 and get 5% off your order. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, we're talking about process with the book. So how do you how do you balance out all these various interests? You know, like do you just kind of follow your fancy? Because you know, some people are very rigid in how they try to schedule their creative endeavors. You know, they'll, they'll I'm going to write 10 pages a day. I'm going to illustrate three pages a day, right? Others like me would absolutely hate it. You sound like more of a ladder to some extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there is a, a definitely a bit of balance between following a fancy, which there is a lot of, yeah. and also maintaining a focus on a project to see it to fruition. Um, let's take A Hunter's Tale, for example. That's you know a recent comic book of mine. And uh, over the course of the pandemic and a really rough couple of years there, um, I was having a difficult time just like everybody else. And one of the ways I found solace is to come back to this body of poetry that my grandfather had written. And this one in particular had always resonated with me. So um, everything felt right at that time. It's not to say that I didn't have other interests that I wanted to pursue, but I knew if I wanted to get this project done that I had to directly focus on that. And so over the course of about half a year, I illustrated this book and then brought it to fruition after that. So um, all that to say, Yes, I have flights of fancy. Yes, I, you know, follow my muse, but I try my best to balance it by really having an ebb and flow of that. Like after this book project is done and the Kickstarter is complete, I'm going to be wiping my brow and not focusing on something for a while. Like I'm going to be following my fancy and my muse. Okay. Uh, and then after I give myself some time, then I come back to a project with laser focus and make it happen again. So yeah. I've already got projects lined up after that where I'm collaborating with people, but they all know, okay, when Ryan's done with this at the end of the year, he's going to need a minute to just do silly things for a while. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, we've kind of known each other, I guess, for a couple of years now. Um, first of all, like, living with, you know, this autoimmune disease, it's, it's meant the world to me when you and other folks in the comics community, just, just check in on me from time to time. Um, thanks for that. You know, of course. and over the course of that time, getting to know you a little bit, it seems like the role of the educator, at, at least at this moment in time is a little bit more the focus of your energy. You know, obviously you've been working on this book, but you, you're really excited all the time about teaching. So, you know, I guess a is, is that an accurate statement and B, you know, what, what fuels you about teaching others. You know, I, I really enjoyed teaching when I was doing it myself. Yeah, totally. Y yes, that's accurate. I love teaching. I love interacting with students and uh, just helping people in general realize their potential and what they want to do in this world. Um, so yes, teaching fulfills me. I'm also fulfilled by personal projects and I've tried in the past to do one or the other thinking, okay, teaching is my gig and I'm going to do this all the time. And then I really felt um, this, this pull, this need to nurture my own work. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about uh, maybe like 10 years ago uh, when I was really pushing hard at Michigan State University to develop a program and make a place for myself because I was still a part-time teacher at the time. I'm a full-time professor now, but I was spearheading a minor course of study and directing an annual event on campus for comics and putting out, uh, you know, hosting and producing a podcast monthly for the university and just doing everything I possibly could to make myself indispensable, form a program and secure a place for myself. There was about a five-year period in there where I did not come out with anything. I did not put out a book at all. And, and you'll see it over the course of One Bite at a Time, this book that we're talking about, where um, 
there's, there's not a book for about a half a decade period. There's some illustration work in there that I was, you know, keeping my hand moving, but I did not come out with a book for at least five years. And I started feeling really bad about myself. Like, why am I feeling this way? And I come to find out I've got to nurture that side as well. Like, uh, so whenever I see really prolific, uh, mentors in the world, I often think, and sometimes we'll have a conversation with them about like, what are you doing to nurture your interests? Like you're helping lots of other people nurture their interests. Right. Where in the day, in the month, in the year is, is that happening for you? Uh, cause it, it took me a while to figure out and I'm, I'm glad I finally did. And now I feel like I can take that 30,000 foot view and kind of assess the situation and see, okay, like how is this balance working out and, and be more cognizant of that. But to come back to your question, yes, I am very passionate about teaching. I think it's also because I have this balance and then I can bring these experiences to the classroom. Like, Hey, uh, I'm creating this art book that's looking back over my work. And boy, did I wish I knew this when I was creating this book. Right. Uh, I would do things a lot differently. And here's how you can make your life easier for it. Um, so yeah, I love teaching. I've, I've got this dream gig where I get to teach comic books. That's all the classes I teach now. It wasn't always that way, but I've been working up to that and slowly growing the program and getting additional interest to the point where now... I am teaching exclusively comics studio courses now. So I'm very excited about that. Well, you know, kind of oftentimes the teacher is also best served to to be open. You know, with that openness, you can become a student yourself. So, you know, kind of what have you seen that your your students did that you were like, ah, that you wanted to kind of incorporate kind of into your own, you know, promotional, in this case, that we're talking about workflow or processes. I mean, Okay, social media is a mess, right? But like the kids are into TikTok, so yeah, I've uh, I've got a lot of inspiration from my students over the years. Uh, I, I'm thinking, like in the terms of comics mechanics, there was a student that did this uh, comic where there were a, a couple people talking on the phone, and it was you know in in a way that uh, there was. Uh, trying to even come up with the words like an analog phone, not a cell phone. So back in the day when there were cords <laughs> attached to phones. Right, sure. And so there was this like, you know, a little loopy line between the two panels on either side of the page where the characters are talking to one another. And as the conversation progresses, one of them says kind of a jerky thing and the other one yanks on the cord and like pulls the other one like physically back in the panel toward the other. And like, obviously that can't happen in reality, but in comics, it totally made sense because you see these visual elements connecting one another and stuff like that just really makes me think outside the box. Personally, I'm typically much more of a meat and potatoes layout comics kind of guy. Like I want uh, clarity to be first and foremost in my comics. And it's not to say I don't want excitement or interest or artistic value but like in terms of panelization i'm typically pretty like rectilinear in my panel uh, compositions and stuff like that really jars me out of like oh look at this amazing thing that you can do with comics and in terms of this art book we talked about that page with a few die cut holes in it that's a direct reference to an art book that my student brought in you know we were talking last year and i was getting this art book to fruition. And she told me, oh, that's awesome. I, I collect art books. Do you mind if I bring some in and show you? I'm like, Gosh, yes, totally. And I'll bring in some of mine. We can have a little exchange. And so we did that. And I was flipping through one of them and saw this die cut element in there. And I was just blown away and said, that's it. I've, I've got to use this too. This is such an incredible learning tool, process tool. So that's one of the just a couple of the many ways that I'm inspired by my students. But then also as a teacher, you probably know when you have to teach something, you really have to understand it. You really have to synthesize it for yourself. And over the course of delivering these lectures, and I don't just do it once, like I'm going over these classes each semester, it also reminds me of those principles and sort of ingrains them in my head to the point where they're almost um, like second nature now. They're almost like uh, innate to me. But 
rewind 20 years and they sure were not. Like I remember taking my work around to conventions and showing it to some of my heroes and asking them, hey, what do you think? And uh, I, I was talking to Sergio Aragones one time and showed him one of my comics and he's like, oh yeah, this is great, but uh, I don't know where I am. I'm like, oh, what do you mean? He said, well, there's not an establishing shot here. I'm like, oh, of course. You know, and so like, it helps me to have those experiences and understand where students are coming from and see where I was 20 years ago and not take that for granted and be able to show them these things that I've been shown over the years, but in a more focused and consolidated way throughout a semester's class rather than traveling to a bunch of conventions and hoping that somebody will talk to you about it. <laughs> right, for sure. Well, you've got a few successful crowdfunding campaigns under your belt now. You've, you've been doing this a while. You know, kind of when working with your students who are launching their own campaigns, because I know I saw at least one, um, you know, kind of what sage wisdom are you sharing with them about how to, how to go about that, how to prepare and all that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mentioned that I'm a big proponent of self-publishing. I'm also a big proponent of crowdfunding. There's so many benefits to it for an independent creator. Uh, one, when I was creating comics back 20 years ago, I had to make some wild guess as to how many people would be interested in this. With a crowdfunding pre-order model, you have a pretty darn good idea how many people are going to be interested in this thing. So you can print a hundred or you can print a thousand or you can print 10,000, you know, whatever the interest is. Um, and then hopefully pad that a little bit. So you've got some to take to conventions along the way, but, uh, but it really, really helps in that regard. It also helps to grow your community. Uh, I've met people through crowdfunding that discovered my work there that I would have never met otherwise. So that's really great. Crowdfunding also allows you to build an audience in terms of, okay, you did crowdfunding campaign number one, and now you have information from these very kind folks who are interested in your work, which you can then move forward to your next crowdfunding campaign and build on top of that. And then again, and then again. And so this is just such an incredible resource that was not around when I first started making comics. I mean, I was literally walking my books around to brick and mortar stores, asking if they would take them on consignment in hopes that maybe one day I would get a little bit of return from these books. But to come back to your question, like what sage advice do I give for students who are running crowdfunding campaigns? Um, a lot. I have a whole outline of things that I walk them through over okay. the course of about 10 weeks to lead up to the launch of a crowdfunding campaign. But I would say, first and foremost, the most important thing that you can do as a creative person is to start an email list. Starting and maintaining an email list, that doesn't just mean taking in emails and then waiting until you have something and say, hey, please give me money. It means using that email list to provide those folks with interesting content, like take them along on the journey. What is it that you're making these days? Show them some pages, take them along for that ride. And then finally, when it comes time to launch this project, then they're going to have an affinity toward it. Oh, I've, I've seen Ryan working on that for the past several months or years or what have you. Uh, I can't believe it's finally here. Let's celebrate. So more folks are interested and invested in what you're doing if you maintain that email list, meaning maintain some sort of a, a, a periodic uh, communication with them. And when I first started, somebody told me, you should make an email list. You should start collecting emails. And when I was in my 20s, I was super resistant to that. I said, uh, and I, I, that sounds really salesy and, and schmarmy. I, I don't want to ask people for their emails. And the person I was talking to at the time said, look, you're going to conventions anyway. Just set out a piece of paper. You don't even have to say anything about it. And if they want to sign up, they can. And sure enough, people did. They bought my work and said, what's this? I'm like, oh, it's just an email list. I, I send it out quarterly or so. And they're like, cool, signed up. And you know, I've got an email list of uh, you know, probably over 1,500 folks at this point. Nice. Um, but, uh, but that is the artist's lifeline. You can social media till you're blue in the face. And I'm not saying don't do that, but the return on yelling into the void is far less than 
communicating directly with people who have an interest in your work and you have a direct line into their inbox. Social media platforms can come and go and who knows what's going to happen with any of them. You know, when one goes to the wayside, all that work you've done to compile an audience there is gone. But email is typically the thing that people hold on to for a much longer time in the digital world than anything else. So if you can start building and maintaining an email list, that is first and foremost. And I tell my students, look, each week over the course of these 10 weeks, get 10 email addresses. That's two email addresses every weekday. And then take a break on the weekend, then come back and do it again. Uh, And they say, okay, well, uh, parents, friends, okay, I can maybe do the first week or two, but then what? Like, well, do you have any social media uh, uh, pages that you that you keep up? Like, oh yeah, of course. Well, how many friends or followers or what have you do you have? Oh, it's it's always in the hundreds. Like, well, there you go. Individually contact each one of them and say, hey, um, I'm really glad you're part of my list here. I'm working on this project that I'm really excited about, and I'm trying to gather some emails to uh, let people know how it's going on a more regular basis. If you're interested in that, let me know. Otherwise, I hope it finds you great. Have a good day. And that's it. And you can really start combing your social media and uh, sort of taking back (laughs) some of the control that these platforms have by, you know, talking with folks and getting some email addresses. Nice. Yeah. Direct communication, it seems like um, it's it's the new thing again. <laughs> we, we come back around. It's all of a sudden hip to use email again. <laughs> right. Um, well, as I mentioned at the start, you're fully funded. Um, I was a backer day one, maybe maybe day two. I can't remember at this point, but I certainly am. You know, you've got the proverbial kitchen sink uh, that we've already talked about in this thing already. Are you working on developing stretch goals at this point or where are we at with all that? Yeah, I I think I'm going to roll out some stretch goals here before too long. I wanted to see kind of where things settled down. You and I are talking, you know, after about the first week or so of the campaign. Mm -hmm. And and I think I'm going to be rolling them out before too awfully long. But honestly, I've been just underwater trying to promote this thing as best I can. Because again, as a self-publisher, I have total and complete control, but everything lands on me. You know, I have not hired a media team or, you know, nor do I have a, an intern to, you know, push this stuff out. Like it's literally me on the treadmill every morning posting to each and every social media site. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I, I've been trying to keep up with all that and maintain communication with folks who are a part of the campaign already, you know, and make it interesting and fun for them. I've been, we've been doing some games and, uh, people have been getting some original artwork for me just for, nice. for being a part of the, uh, a part of the experience. So it's, it's been a lot of fun, but a lot of, a lot of stuff to keep up with. So, uh, I think now that things maybe will settle down a little bit, I can start focusing on, okay, let's, let's stretch this a little bit. <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to be the guinea pig for something new I'm going to try out here. Um, I want to start a, a quick hit section in my interviews, which is like five rapid fire questions um, that I'll also answer. Uh, I'll attempt to keep it short in my case. Um, this is a way kind of for the audience to get to learn a little bit more broadly about you and secondarily me. So are you up for this? I think I'm ready. All right, let's go. So what is your favorite comic that you've read in 2023? Uh, let's see. I really love Isle of Elsie. This is a web comic for kids that's okay. put out by a cartoonist named Alec Longstreth. You can find it at isleofelsie.com. It's a palindrome. Isle is Elsie spelled backwards or vice versa. Um, so uh, it's it's been going on for quite a number of years at this point, and it's starting to get to the point where Okay, so I, I recently reread the entire thing for uh, you know the second or third time over, and I really started to come to this realization that this is Alex's magnum opus. It's his bone. It's his Lord of the Rings, and he's really developing this accessible yet very interesting and uh, thoughtful world seems to like not do it justice it's such a it's such a cool little adventure comic for kids and uh but accessible for adults too uh i would highly recommend it (laughs) okay 
This is so cool. This is why I'm doing this because it gives me stuff to go check out. Um, for me, it's days of, I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. It's also okay. available online for free. So ILOVLC.com. Cannot beat that. Well, <laughs> for me, it's um, Days of Sand, um, which mm. is this big, beefy graphic novel that I think it came out last year. Um, but yeah, it is it is gorgeous. You have a uh, somebody who's commissioned by a newspaper to go basically document the Dust Bowl as a photographer. Oh wow! So so it is this for being a photographer myself. Um, this is one of the few instances where you've really had somebody trying to capture within comics panels even just the snapshot. You know what it is to to be a photograph to craft this and also to to be embedded in a situation where you're also getting emotionally attached to the people that are involved. So very, very good. Very good. Wow. Very cool. Can you say the title of that again? Days of Sand. Days of Sand. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite pinball game? Maybe you own it. Maybe you don't. <laughs> um, gosh, you stumped me. There's a few. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with Whirlwind. That's a game that I own. It's designed by Pat Lawler, art by John Yowsey, and it's just like a perfect quintessential late 80s, early 90s. I think it was put out in 89. Um, Pinball Machine doesn't have a super crazy deep rule set, but it's like challenging enough where it keeps me coming back. I, I don't always need a an, an epic 45-minute game when I'm playing pinball. Sure. Um, so uh, it also has the coolest topper in all of pinball, which is a fan that blows at you when you start the storm and like these multiple rotating discs on the play field. Uh, go at the same time. So really good theme integration, fun shots. Uh, I'll go with Whirlwind. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah, mine is so much more simple than that. My uh, my grandfather growing up um, when I was a kid owned a like a small grocery store. It was the only one in that half of the county. And adjacent to that, he had a little bitty like penny arcade with just a few like pinball games in it and a laundromat like combined. So I would go over there for hours and I... I have no idea what the name is, but it was like it was a circus themed pinball machine. I'd play it for hours. And it was one of the most simple, you know, no no, no fancy ramps or, or anything like that. Just just two paddles. And it, it was just so much fun. It's just a, a great memory for me. So. Can I ask you a few questions about this circus game? You because sure can. There's yeah, a few circus pinball games, and I'm curious about what era it was from. Because there's a Gottlieb circus that was put out in the 80s, I want to say, sort of a red body. But then there's like this huge giraffe neck that goes up the play field. No, Is that ringing a bell? No, nope. it wasn't that. This would have been in like the late 70s, maybe early. Okay. I, I was also going to go to a 1950s, 40s, 40s or 50s game uh, called Circus by Exhibit. So it sounds like it's after that. I'm trying to think of the circus game that would have been in the 70s. It, it, though. it very well could have been from the 1950s, right? Like, Did it have wooden side rails on it? Yep. That's in my collection. I have okay. that game. Nice. Okay. <laughs> that's so funny. Wow. Yeah. I'll have to send yeah. you some pictures. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's so much fun. Yeah, I, I loved. I burned so many hours on that as a kid. That's so um, cool. If you could work on one big IP character or group of characters out there, what would it be and why? Um. I'm not that into like I like I don't have really a dream IP. I I like I really like independent work and seeing new things that folks do. Um if I had to pick one though, maybe I'd say Mr. Rogers because okay. I love I love that show. I love his what he does for people, not just kids, but like uh you know, he'd explore factories and let you see how things were made and he'd talk about difficult feelings and the fact that it's okay to have these feelings and and how to process them and you know not not a lot of people do that and he did it in such a calm friendly approachable way um so yeah if if anything I, i'd probably say mr rogers okay i'd do the uh i don't know if you've seen it but the the shadow and bone series that's been on netflix oh yeah 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 so the writer also has lupus um mm. And one of the the primary characters is um, somebody with a disability that I have to assume is kind of associative with with some of the debilitating stuff that can happen with lupus. Yeah. Um, although it's never directly stated, but yeah, it would be great to 
do a comics adaptation of that. Enjoy it. Yeah. Um, cool. Do you do you listen to music while you work? I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, would you like to hear about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me about who it is. Yeah, we're, we're extending the quick hits beyond a little bit quick, but that's all right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, often when I'm working, I will queue up some eight bit NES jams. So okay. I, I love listening to uh, the original Metroid soundtrack. I like the Dragon Warrior soundtrack, the Mega Man soundtracks. Uh, so, so those are in frequent rotation, and then occasionally I'll I'll get into like chiptune radio type stuff that is sort of like more modern interpretation of using these 8-bit sounds. Um, uh, that's kind of what I've been listening to lately. And then if I, I really need to like focus, but I still want something going, there's this, there's this channel that's like, uh, oh, what is it called? It's like this quasi-smooth jazz stuff, but it's called like chill hop um, traffic music or something okay <laughs> anyway it's it's very relaxing and like very background type of sound uh i've surprised myself with how often i'll cue that up yeah how about I, you i can't work very easily at all if it's got like any vocals it will completely distract same um, so i have to have like i'll listen to bt or you know brian taylor who's done a lot of soundtracks for movies and for um, television shows and that kind of stuff. Uh, so that that's typically if I listen to music at all. Typically, I don't. But if I do, it cannot have vocals at all. Um, if you could change one misconception about the comics medium, what would it be and why? Um, I think there's still sort of a popular opinion that when you mix words and pictures that somehow they're less than the sum of their parts. You know, prose is valid as books, images are valid as fine art, but when you put them together, like they're less somehow. I, and I don't understand that, especially after all the work that's come out of comics uh, that is so incredibly thoughtful. Um, so that, that'd probably be the one. What about you? Um, it would be the misconception that comics are either just for kids or for the guy who is unmarried and lives in his mama's basement. Right. Um, because they're the, the dearth of so many amazing emotional things is out there. And I will, I will use you as an example here. Right. So I got a copy of the hunter's tale and I actually got two. So I've been trying to relate this whole podcast thing to my in-laws and they're like, ah, you know, comics are for kids. Why is he doing this? Right. Um, so I was able to show them that, explain the premise, and they're I'm not going to say they're going to get into comics, but like they were like, "Oh, this is not at all what we thought you were doing." You know, that's um, so cool. Yeah, yeah. So it became a really nice way to to change their minds. Um, wow, so, wow. Yeah. That that means a lot to me. I'm so glad you shared that with them, and that that experience was had. That's so cool. Thank you for yeah. telling me that. 100%. See, this quick hits thing is great. I'm going to stick yeah. with it. Um, well, I'm not going to let you go until we talk about Cross Stitch a little bit. Um, nice. I absolutely love loved doing it as a kid. Kind of clued people in. Ryan sent me some of his Cross Stitch stuff in January, including some that actually had glow in the dark thread, which looks amazing. So, with our move and my recent health battles, I'm just starting this Mario Brothers piece, I think, which you saw on the socials. Um, I've wanted to work on it ever since I saw your stuff, but what got you into cross stitch anyway? And, you know, are you making your own patterns at this point? Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm so glad you're getting back into this. <laughs> I, I felt like it was really a calming cathartic thing for me to get back into as well. Like I had forgotten about it for decades. Like I, I did it as a kid because I was just, a crafty little kid, you know, I would draw pictures, I would do cross stitch, I would play with Play-Doh, you know, whatever. I, I just, I like doing crafty stuff. And uh, during the holidays, my mom would buy me these, you know, tiny little uh, ornament cross stitch kits. And I, I finished one and she got another. And eventually we had dozens, you know, I was just work on them all the time. I thought it was really fun. I'd get early, I'd get up early in the morning. I was an early riser. And rather than 
run around the house and wake up my parents, I'd just start working on this cross-stitch ornament. And okay. it was a way for me just to, you know, have some some productive alone time. And like I said, forgot about it for many decades until, again, the pandemic. And I saw these little ornaments and I thought, man, that I remember that being fun and got a little kit that said Noel, N-O-E-L, spelled out in a like a two-by-two matrix. And of course, because I can't leave anything alone, I changed it to Tilt instead of Noel okay. and you know, made my own pinball-themed ornament. And after I was done, I'm like, yeah, I want to do this some more. So as you alluded to, I'll sort of create my own patterns. And I say sort of because I'm very inspired by 8-bit NES Nintendo games. And so I'll take sprites from those old games and create things like... I made a Metroid cross-stitch sampler. And for those who are unaware, cross-stitch samplers are things that were originally done before they had printed patterns. And so they would stitch like different designs or lettering. So then they could go to these sampler patterns and say, oh, I want to do lettering like this, or I want to do a border like this. And eventually it started becoming kind of like a flex for different cross-stitchers where they would really put everything into it. Like, look at all these borders and look at all these fonts and look at all this I can do. And so you get these gigantic sampler patterns. And so it's kind of a thing now. And so I thought, man, wouldn't it be fun to make a sampler pattern out of 8-bit graphics? And so I've compiled all those. And it was really fun to, once again, really like puzzle piece these things together to see how they could fit in a really evenly distributed way. I created it in this like circular pattern. And uh, anyway, I say sort of because I did not make those sprites, but I'm kind of grabbing them and using them and recomposing them into something that I think is interesting. So, so sort of I create my own patterns. But what about you? I know you're working on this Super Mario Brothers one. Do you have... Yeah. Well, I'm still trying to... I'm doing the research on sourcing. You know, like, okay, so... I haven't done it in forever. So it's one of those things where, okay, so how many threads do I need to use, you know, while I'm doing this? And it's, I'm just really in the the fact finding phase because I want to be able to like mount it. Um, and th- there are all kinds of cool stuff like glow in the dark threads. So it's like, okay, so how can I incorporate glow in the dark? It's not in the pattern, but I want to be able to use it so that I get an outline, you know? So yeah. Yeah, yeah. totally. I, I remember reacquainting myself with, you know, different counts of cross-stitch fabric and what that means and how many threads. And I I did a lot of tests to start too. And some cross-stitchers enjoy seeing that X. And I found for me, I really enjoyed loading up that needle with a bunch of thread so that it really fills out and looks like a square rather than an X because I want to create these 8-bit images, you know? And that, that seemed like it looked more authentic to me, but so, it's cool because you can make it whatever you want it to. How many threads are you having to pack in there? Did you ever count it or? I'll, sure I'll typically right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll typically use four threads on like an eighteen count Ada. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I've also right. dabbled around with some uh, linen. I, I don't know if you've used this or not yet, but instead of Ada fabric, where you've got like a big thread that creates these tiny little holes on, you know, the non-cardinal directions, southwest, southeast, et cetera. Right. Um, you've got an even weave of pattern so that you actually have to skip a square as you're going through them to make that X shape. And it's like your eyesight's got to be all right, or you've got to have a good magnifying glass to do it. But it's a really interesting um, uh surface on which to cross stitch because i don't know about you but i'm used to using that ada cloth which is you know you can see the four different holes that you're going to stitch in exactly Um, so so that's been a really different experience for me too but like um it's sort of like the cadillac of cross stitching (laughs) like if you want to make something that lasts for a long time and people say "Ooh, you've 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 done some interesting work here then you you use even weave fabric at least that's what i've come to find out but I'm wow. sure this is endlessly fascinating for comic book fans. <laughs> no, people people love derivative stuff. Like um, <laughs> recently on an interview, I got off and we were talking about the merit the 
the um, mental health merits of Pokemon Go. Cool. So I, it's I, there. There's mental health merit to to learning how to do cross stitch, right? There's a Zen to it. You can. It's a meditation in itself. Once you get over the frustration of, oh my goodness, how do I get started? Right. That's yeah. Always the, right. Always right. the thing. All right. My last question. I promise. Where can people find you online? I mean, I I know you've got a, a Patreon thing going too, right? That's true. I've got a website. I've got Patreon. But really, where I'd like everybody to go this month is one bite at a time book. Dot com. That's one bite at a time book.com. It'll take you straight to this Kickstarter page where I am launching the biggest, craziest, most ambitious book I've ever designed in my entire life. And I can't wait to share it with you. Well, if I've done my job here, dear audience member who are listening and bored of cross stitch talk, uh, you should be interested <laughs> in checking out one bite at a time anyway, if you're not interested in doing cross stitch. So I've backed multiple other projects of Ryan's, can assure you, everyone has been beautifully executed, delivered in a timely fashion. You will get emails with updates that have videos. Uh, it, it could be him signing stuff. I, there's a lot of stuff. He, he keeps everybody up to date on what's happening. Though. Um, they're all very different too. So head on over to Kickstarter, search for One Bite at a Time. Um, I'll include a link uh, in the show notes to make it easy for everyone. Ryan, always, it, it's so much fun to get a chance to hang out with you again. So thanks for coming on the show today. Same. Thank you so much for having me here, Byron. And I just so appreciate your time. It's it's great hanging out with you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Oh, shout out to Jimmy's brother, Bobby, our most dedicated listener. Thank you, Bobby. We should hey, make Bobby. Sure, we should make Bobby an award. Maybe I'll do a little cross-stitch thing. The Bobby Award. There we go. <laughs> all right. Bye, everybody. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.